Best Book Bits podcast brings you Dr. Brett Deller, founder of The Momentum Revolution, empowering men to be better, keynote speaker, mentor, health and wellness advocate, and all-round great bloke. Brett, thanks for being on the show. Thanks very much for having us, Michael. Great to be here, buddy. No worries. Now, we'll go back over your story soon, but uh, you're a fellow Australian just as I am on the other side uh, in uh, Western Australia, where I'm from Victoria. But tell us, what uh, is The Momentum Revolution and how did it get started? It got started accidentally. Uh, it's about creating space for men to understand that you know we're not alone, that we we do all have challenges at different times and that we need to reach out and ask for help. And, and just by men being in that same space and sharing and opening up, it just allows men to go, you know what, I, I can get through this, I can work through this, and there's, there's a, other options out there for me. I know your story, but people listening don't. Take us back to... Your younger days, so you suffered for depression for 30 years and you have an amazing story. Do you want to tell us how that sort of kicked off and where it started and how it unfolded in your early years? Yeah, sure. Uh, my, my depression kicked in probably in my late teens, early 20s. It was very mild initially and then it, it gradually got worse over the years. The the heavier the old emotional backpack got, the worse the depression got. Um, and I really suffered from depression until I was 50. And it all stemmed back to me not dealing with my past and my emotions and my traumas from, from, as it turns out, my childhood. And I always knew it was there. I just didn't really know how it was affecting me to the, to the extent it was affecting me in a lot of ways. And it, it, it was actually the fear of those, of that trauma and the fear of the emotions attached to it, which was, you know, the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment, the blame, because I blame myself for what happened. Uh, and by not dealing with any of that, it's really took its emotional toll on me over the long, long haul. And that trauma was being uh, sexually abused as a six and seven year old by a neighbor. And, you know, as a, as a bloke, you sort of bury that sort of stuff and pretend everything's okay. And, yeah, you know, and the emotional attachments to it in regards to the shame and the, the, the guilt and blame, et cetera, that, that is a, was, you know, seemed to be as a weakness for me. It's like, you, you know, as a bloke, you're tough and hard and strong and you can't, you know, let that stuff affect you, which obviously was the opposite way it should have been, but that's the sort of mentality we had in society, I suppose, back in those times. And and I honestly think it's starting to change, which is which is great. Yeah, definitely. And you're a, you're a key component of that change and embracing that as well. So yeah, some of the notes I took down was, um, you know, having lived with shame, guilt and embarrassment, blame and fear for those unresolved past traumas. You know, you spent 30, 40 years, you know, you said six, but until you're 50 is when you sort of really opened up the Pandora's box and, and, and spoke about it. And now what, what's come for that? I was actually listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast today with Susan Cain, who wrote the book Quiet. And I had no idea that Tim himself suffered from childhood um, traumas. And he opened up about that on a podcast as well and went into that. So, you know, it's something that, you know, vulnerability begets vulnerability. And the more that you're vulnerable to other people, uh, the more they open up um, as well. What was sort of your professional life? I know you're a sort of a police, you're a policeman at one stage as well. What what other things did you do in your professional career and chiropractic, uh, being a chiropractor as well? Yeah, yeah. So I, I joined the police force when I was in my uh, when I was 21 actually, and was there for about eight or nine years, and was a detective at the time, and and that gave me a great grounding in regards to how to speak to people and how to interact, and and gave me some real great life life lessons because apart from my child abuse, I had a very sheltered childhood. I had a very loving and caring and you know amazing parents you know they're still together and they're still very nurturing and supportive with whatever i do 
And so to see the other side of, of life uh, as a police officer, it sort of you know really gives you a little bit of a, a reality check on what goes on in the other parts of the world. And I then went through a few, I suppose it was an early midlife crisis because I went through from job to job working in, in finance and a few other bits and pieces along the way before I had this, you know, revelation. It was like chiropractic and I've always been a chiropractor and and uh, I've been doing that, I think, uh, studying and working as a chiropractor for the last 19 years, which I absolutely love. I love helping people. And then obviously four years ago, there was another transition into this this uh, mental well-being for men. That was, a, a, you know, another... Um, change in the direction of the of the work part of my life I suppose but uh, each time it's sort of it's it's morphed into something greater for me because I love my chiropractic but the 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 purpose I have for this calling now it's just it's it's the biggest thing I'll ever do and I just I can't wait to make the biggest impact in this world that I can around and that's what it is it's a purpose I just want to make the biggest impact I can for people throughout the world who are struggling and just let them know that you know there is answers out there that if you just ask and do the work and and stick by it your life can change you know very quickly if you want it, if you want it to yeah there's a massive shift in the energy i mean females have been working uh, with females on this stuff for you know eons and they're very open about it but it's somewhere along the line that men sort of took a back seat with this but now realizing that men take half the toll as well and whatever females experience men experience as well and we need more men teachers like yourself to hold space and to be able to facilitate these things hence i'm interviewing you because of the uh, momentum revolution which is you know i think a very powerful workshop and i think some great things that you're you're doing and will continue to do as well so obviously i want to support you as much as i can reading into your story you talk about man masks what are man masks the, the man mask is the face that we show the rest of the world that we're okay when in fact we're not you know and and it, everyone wears a mask. We all wear masks at different times. It's it's part of what we do. It's a matter of knowing that we're wearing it because sometimes if we wear the man mask, we don't know we're wearing it. It becomes blurred. The lines become blurred. So as a police officer, if I rock, rocked up to a scene where it was a murder scene or a, or a death or some horrific assault, then I couldn't be an emotional mess. I had to be strong and in control and deal with it in that moment. But when I got home, what I really should have done is take that mask off. So, for example, I, I was involved in a siege uh, in a country town in WA where a guy had walked into a building, uh, an office building, and shot and killed someone. And he was walking around the building actually letting off shot, shots. And I don't know how many shots there was, 40 or 50 shots he let off, and no one else even got hurt. So being in that scene and seeing that, was you, you it was amazed that no one else got hurt, let alone killed. And being in there and being the first through the door and in there for five hours looking for him, it, you know, I had to be strong and resilient and tough. And I was the only single bloke in there. All the rest of the guys were married with children, uh, married or married with children. And so I decided I would go on point, which meant I would open the doors up and and uh, be first through Well, those guys were sort of the backups because I didn't want them to not go home to their families. And that man mask that I put on is that, that police mask it was at the time. It's like, do get the job done, find this guy, get everyone out and get home. But when you, left the, when you left that scenario and left that scene, there was no debrief really, apart from probably 20 minutes or an hour the next day. There was no counselling. There was no nothing back in the time. That was back in the early 90s. 
And and so I just shut all the, the emotion and the fear because, you know, every time you open the door, you think uh, it could be my turn. And you just shut all that stuff down. So when you're shutting down the stuff about your childhood and you shut down this stuff as well, it just, it magnifies it all. And, and so... With a man mask, you know, for me, whenever anyone asks me, because I was struggling so long for, for depression, my whole thing was, how are you doing, Brent? It's like, I'm okay, I'm fine. Whereas really I wasn't. And, and you know, depending on the job we do and what we do, we have to put those masks on, but we have to learn to take them off as well. You know, and some of the masks you might recognize is, you know, the Joker, the cool cat like Fonzie, uh, you know, the class clown, the Joker, um, the tough guy, the bully, the the social butterfly, all those things are masks to protect. You know, the perfectionist is another, perfectionist is another one. It protects us from the world seeing those perceived faults in ourselves because they are perceived faults, you know. I, I felt like a failure and a fraud. And so to make sure no one saw that, then I went, I'm okay, my life's great. When in fact, I was an emotional mess behind the scenes. Yeah, we've spoken offline a little bit about uh, PTSD, and you know, back in those days, I'm not sure um, I'm not as uh, not as old as you. I'm uh, only mid thirties, but yeah, what was what was PTSD like back in the day? Did they was that clarified, or was that something not spoken about, or what what was it like in the mid nineties? Uh, look, I, I remember working, and it was in the same town, and we were working with a um, uh, one of the the other guys there, and he had been involved in an incident in Perth. And it really rocked him. Uh, I, th I think it was something to do with a guy um, trying to jump off a, off a building, trying to um, take his own life. And he helped the situation and held on to the guy until help was on its way. And it really knocked him about emotionally. And I remember how within the actual job itself, and when I say the job, the police force, within the, the job, you know, it was looked at as like, oh, he needs counselling. That's just weak. What's he need counselling for? And he was he was he was berated behind the scenes for it, and, you know, and made and I don't know if he actually knew that or he was aware of it, but that would just make it much much worse if he did. And uh, and you know, he was obviously a, a gentle guy, and he was a nice bloke too, by the way. Um, but it obviously it was not looked at as being it was looked at as being a weakness. Basically, that's how I viewed it. From, that's my perspective. It was looked at as being a weakness because if you showed that you need counselling because of something that happened then, it's like, what's wrong with you, mate? Just get on with it. And you just can't because, like I said, it builds up and it, it wears you down and then, you know, all this other stuff happens with the depression and, and anxiety and then, you know, it, worst case scenario, you've got your suicide attempts, which is or, or worse. Yeah, we'll get into that in a sec as well, but it all comes down to culture. And, you know, culture has changed for the better, which is great, uh, but, you know, going back, you know, culture dictates behavior because we're social creatures and, you know, people saying those things about, oh, why do you need to get help? They're protecting their ego as well and not showing their vulnerability too. So I guess, you know, we do get, um, we get a bit smarter over the years and decades as well. But another mask you used as well was alcohol and, and sport as well. You know, I've had my run-ins with alcohol, not to use it as a mask, but to use it as a, like a decompression as well. So obviously alcohol is very prevalent in our in our culture, especially in Australia, but other parts of the world as well, where it's seen as just a you know a, a normal thing that we partake in these cultures, and and also sport as well. Can you talk about your experience with uh, alcohol and sport? Yeah, what's your experience with that? Yeah, it's, it sort of it masks that pain or it hides it, uh, numbs it. So with with the the sport, it was 
I started playing sport exactly the same time that I was abused. And so I look back now and that was a space in my world that I can control. I could control what happened on the hockey field initially and then the footy field and then the cricket field. And so it was, a, and I used to run a lot. I remember when I was 10 years old, I used to do laps around the block at, um, before I went to school in the morning. And, and that was my control. And I look back now and I can see that that's what it was. I could control that, that physical aspect of my life. Whereas all the emotional stuff that was going on behind the scenes from when I was a kid, I, I couldn't control that. And so I used sport and it was a very positive thing to get into. I mean, I could have gone down a very different path and I'm so grateful that I didn't. But it allowed me to have a physical release and let out all my stuff, but still be in a really positive environment with a bunch of really good blokes who've become really great mates of mine over the years, who, you know, some of them are like brothers to me. And, and I'm very, very grateful for that. And it allowed me to have some really great times, um, but it also allowed me to deal with those issues uh, as I went along in a, in a cathartic way, which I didn't know was happening. When it came to the alcohol, uh, that was just, you know, when, when those voices in my head, and I talk about um, the little Brett used to carry the fear around with him for, you know, um, 12 years till I was about 18, 19 years old. And then he said, you know what? I can't carry this anymore. This is your job. And he gave it to the adult Brett. And, and the adult Brett, when all these voices and emotions started coming up about my past, because I always knew it was there, I just didn't have any feelings about it. But when it started to arise and bubble up, that's when... I had to numb it. And that's when, you know, you're 18 years old, you're going out, I was going out five nights a week, hitting the town hard, um, getting home at, you know, four o'clock in the morning, going to work at seven. And it was just, it was just, I look back, it's just crazy. Uh, and I, you know, I, I should have been doing it. And, and moving into the police force a few years later, that allowed me to probably have a bit more structure in regards to shift work. So I didn't party as hard. Uh, not that I still didn't drink, but uh, uh as I dealt with it as, as years got, went on, the, the drinking became less and less, even though there was still moments of non-sobriety, I suppose. And I was never an alcoholic, but I definitely used it to numb those voices uh, a lot, those, those little voices in my head. Yeah, yeah. thanks for sharing and, and opening up as well. Um, some of the notes I've also got uh, by doing some research on your story. You talk about you thought you were a child in a man's body uh, for, for many years. You know, How did you discover this and how did you overcome this? Oh, I, I always, always felt like that. I always thought that someone would, even as a police officer, I mean, I was a police officer, I was a chiropractor uh, for two years. You know, um, I was I was two years in my marriage and I still thought someone was going to come around the corner and go, ah, we know who you are. You're still little Brett. And you're, I just, it's just how I felt. Even though I, I did all the responsible things inside, I still felt like a child in a man's body. And and I don't know how I overcome it. I, th I think at the end of the day, I'm very blessed to have an amazing wife. We got married um, when I was um, I was 40, and and uh, she was a she's a few months younger than me, so I have to put that in because she doesn't like me saying that she's the uh, same age. Um, and uh, and Kim is, you know, she's just an amazingly strong, independent woman um, who's just got this beautiful soul and nature, and and she just let me grow into the man that I am, um, and she supported and guided me along the way. Um, she was a soft place to fall when I needed it, but she was also the person to say, you know, it's time to, to um, you know, move forward and get on with your shit. And, and I think just her being there, supporting me along that first two years of our marriage, it just allowed me to 
grow into the man and believe that I was the man that I am. Because, you know, married for two years, chiropractor, ex-copper, and I still feel like a kid. It was, it was, I can't explain it any better than that because I just don't know. It was just one of those weird feelings that, you know, and, and when we first got married, we tried to have kids. We didn't succeed in the end, but um, I just remember thinking, how can I raise a kid when I feel still like a, feel like a kid myself? So it was quite, quite surreal for me, I suppose. I think the men listening, you know, we all have that childlike quality inside us that never goes away. Like I'm a big kid at heart. I've got two young kids, and yeah, I'm just a just a just a big kid. We're all we're all big kids. Um, you talk about as well um, about how we're being conditioned as men not to sort of cry or show emotions or even ask for help, and you know, we carry this fear and pain uh, with us. What's the what's the sort of the first things that if people are aware that they are carrying around, you know baggage and emotional baggage what, what's the first tips or things that you recommend with the momentum revolution on on what they should do like seeking help and you know what's the first place you would you would recommend or what they could do uh just on the other thing mate i'm still a big kid i love to have fun and i just you know i'm, I'm still a big kid i just don't feel like it internally now i just love having fun I'm still a big kid but um uh great question about the what to do and and everyone is different and for me, it's it's always the first step is always just step back and understand what, why and where you're struggling in your life. You know, are you struggling in relationships or work or emotionally? Are you depressed? Are you anxious? What is it? And step back and go, you know what? I am struggling. And just be aware of it. Be aware that you are struggling. And, and the next thing I suppose is acceptance. Acceptance that you are and go, you know what? I am having a hard time here and I do need to have some help. So... And then from there, it's just like, okay, what what's going to work for you? You know, for me, I went to a workshop and that changed my my world around. Uh, and that stemmed from a conversation we had. And I think just talking to someone first, which happened, you know, for me, I spoke to a wonderful bloke called my name of Bruce Bell, a good friend of mine, and had this amazing conversation. And I just had this awakening inside of me. And within two weeks, I was at a workshop and allowed me to deal with my stuff in a really powerful way in a, in a, in a strong, uh, very safe environment. And, and so find what works for you. For me, it was a workshop, but for someone else, it might be going to see a psychologist or going to um, do some online programs or read some self-help books and just work their way through it step by step. But it's really important that they have to work on it every day because if they do it once and then step away, nothing changes. It's really about persistency and consistency and just making sure, you know, okay, I've got a problem. I need to deal with this. And it's like staying fit. You know, you can't stay fit by going for one run every six months. You have to do it three or four or five or six times a week. And it's the same with with um, when we're getting over a mental struggle or emotional struggle or depression or anxiety. Just going to the counsellor once or a psychologist or going to one workshop doesn't work. You have to be consistent with it to allow you to go, you know what, I have to work through this. I've got a stuff to work through and I've just got to work through it. Yeah, well, like the analogy you said with fitness as well, I'm going through a six-month body transformation study next six months and it's something that I've been pushing down and you know putting it down on the, the, the value ladder, so to speak. But things, and, and it's causing me a lot of, lot of issues, you know, gut health, you know, unhappiness, or, or a bunch of, whole bunch of things. And, you know, tying this back to men's mental health, you've got to tackle it. You've really got to overcome it. And that's facing it and, you know, pulling shit out from the past and 
coin a spade a spade, but getting help from people that have been there, done that, walked that path as well, which you know your story has attested. Moving on a little bit in your in your bio, you talk about you're an advocate for uh, mental health and focus on uh, specifically men's mental well-being and the program you facilitate uh, mental wellness programs where you shift the perspective of mental health issues and assist men to look outside of their pain and suffering to see there is acceptance, hope, tools and processes to allow them shift the momentum of their life in a positive direction. Can you just expand a little bit about sort of the first steps of your workshop when uh, new men come? Uh, what's the process? What what happens? Yeah, so so it's basically men either get referred to to me or they're following on on Facebook or uh, whatever the process is, and they understand that they they need to make a shift, and and so when they rock up to the workshop, the workshop is basically structured in a way where they are away from their family for three days, two and a half days. They rock up on a Friday, finish on a Sunday afternoon. And we just, we have a bunch of men who've been through the workshop. Uh, and we basically just through the whole weekend, we sit there, we talk, we open up, we share, we go through some processes that challenge us um, um, sometimes emotionally, sometimes physically, sometimes both. And it's just about getting men to step out of their comfort zone. And understand when they when when they're with these other men who are in the room who've who are also struggling. All of a sudden, it's just it gets this energy where once one person starts, it just starts to flow, and it's just such a beautiful energy, a beautiful weekend. And we just, I just, I love the work. I just, I love the 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 power in it. I love the the way the men transform from day one to day three, and that's just the start of their journey. And and as long as they understand that, then you know the the world is their oyster. And it's seeing some of the, the things and, and hearing some of the things that have men have been through and then overcoming them. I mean, they've just got, you know, the biggest cojones because I remember my first workshop when I had to go and deal with my, my abuse and, and it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. It was the scariest thing, but it was also the most rewarding thing I've ever done. It was just... It was just this plethora of emotions in one weekend, and it was just like oh, I don't want to do this. I'm I'm petrified. I'm scared, uh, scared little boy basically. And then by the end of the weekend, it's like oh my God, I can con- conquer the world, because once you once you overcome that trauma from your past, that those issues, all of a sudden you know the, you can actually open up and go, you know what, I can achieve anything if I want to. I just have to decide what I want to achieve, and so that's that's the very basics of it, but. It's just, it's a two and a half day workshop where men just rock up and we just go through their big days. There's lots of laughter, lots of tears, lots of hugging. And even though men are going, we hug, it's like, yeah, we show you how to hug properly. And they're going, what, there's a way to hug? It's like, yeah, there is. And so we have a bit of fun with that and, and take the mickey and uh, on each other, by the way. And, uh, and, but it's just one of those transformational weekends that I just love being a part of. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I've got a couple of friends in... Uh that have gone to similar workshops and run similar retreats as well. One went to a recent one called Men's Medicine in Melbourne. I've done a bit of research. And yeah, these things are popping up organically because these are things that people are gravitating to. And, you know, COVID obviously really hit everyone mental health-wise, obviously physical health too, you know, economically speaking, losing loved ones and all the bad shit that, that went on. But people are now going, okay, how do we recover? How do we bounce back? How do we get better? And... How do we create these groups of people as well? So t- talk a little bit about WA in terms of where do you go? Do you go in the outback a little bit? Where, where, what's the space like that you run these workshops? Yeah, We've, we've got a couple of spots, actually. We've got a, a spot about an hour and a half 
south of Perth, and it's it's in amongst the pine or just amongst the forest, basically, and next to a pine plantation. And we have the whole premise to ourselves. There's a, a big uh, um, workshop room, I suppose you want to call it, and then they've got these little old chalets where they've uh, they've got just bedrooms, and so we all get into our own little bedrooms, and then we come out and we do the we've got the outside lawn area. Um, so that's in Mile Up, which is like I said, about an hour and a half south. And then we've got another one which we use during the winter time, uh, which is up in Dwelling Up, which is about an hour, an hour and twenty minutes southeast of Perth. And uh, that's definitely amongst the the forest, uh, the big, the massive big gum trees, and and uh, it's at one of the the private schools. We've been able to sneak our way in there. They've allowed us to go and use their their dorms. And it's just got a beautiful energy about that place as well because it's just these old wooden dorms that have been there for 40 years and and uh, and and that's basically where we do it. It's just it's isolated and then you know we have a few little surprises for the men uh, as the weekend comes to a close as well. Is there any sort of plant medicine or any you know Aboriginal things or any you know mystical things that go on or is it just talk therapy with a, a group of guys facilitating you know vulnerability, openness, and and sharing and you know coaching, mentoring. Pitching, pitching and catching as well like is there anything that else that goes on apart from that yeah no we, we definitely incorporate a little bit of aboriginal stuff in regards to the land and and their their view on the land and and uh, uh obviously pay acknowledgement to those um the traditional landholders but we tell the story about uh north south east and west and the different animals and what it means to the aboriginal people and that's and and we we connect to that. We do that a couple of times. We connect to the land, and and the energy to the land. And so that's always a really popular and powerful little piece that we do. And there's there's a whole bunch of other real physical, uh, and I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to surprise it for the guys who rock up because it's always a surprise. Uh, but some real physical challenges for them as well, which always makes them gulp a couple of times so but it's also once they once they've done it they just they just it's like stepping over the fear and they're going i'm here sort of thing so yeah maybe a bit of a fire walk like tony robbins back in the day <laughs> yeah i've done i've done a fire walk and uh yeah it's uh it's uh it's quite empowering but we don't do a fire walk no <laughs> one of the things um you talk about as well which i'd love for you to expand on is uh living in a struggle bubble now, having friends that have suffered mental health, and you know, everyone's lost friends in their life as well, not just physically, but losing their life as well to mental health and everything else that goes on. What are some of the signs that we can see other people apart from ourselves in the struggle bubble to help them get out of a struggle bubble, even to just, you know, uh, label it? You know, you got to name something to tame it. So how do we know that? Hang on a second, we're in a struggle bubble, or we see someone in a struggle bubble. Can you expand on that a little bit? And Anything that we can take away? So with, with the struggle bubble, I talk about how when we're living in it, and it could be anything from being depressed to being in a bad relationship to being treated badly in a, in a relationship and not knowing it, to struggling with depression, not accepting our responsibility, and all those little things. If we're in it and we're really upset and emotional about it, and we, we can't always see the big picture because we're living in it. And as a person from the outside, often we can see the problem. And I, I remember speaking to someone not so long ago and and one of his acquaintances who doesn't know him very well and is quite a lot younger than he is, they, they've turned around and said, ABC, XYZ. And he went, well, how did you know that? She goes, because it's obvious. He goes, oh, is it? 
I never thought of it like that. So he actually pointed out what the pro she pointed out what the problem was for him, but he couldn't see it. And she was like 19 and he's about 50. Um, and so she's this young and experienced woman who could still see that it was a problem with what was going on in his particular situation. And so for sometimes for for us when we're seeing someone, it's like it's a matter of first, I think, just asking how you how they're doing and going, well, you know. I can see this is going on, you know, what's happening and just opening up the conversation and letting them admit or give you the 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 feedback about this is how they feel, and this is what's going on. And then you get try and get them to see, you don't want to give them the answers, but you want to try and set, get them to see them from a different perspective and say, well, have you seen this? Or have you thought about this? Or have you done that? Um, can you see how this might be affecting your life? You know, so, so for example, um, uh, in a relationship, there, there might be a person who has left the relationship, but someone's still hanging on and they're hanging on and they're going, oh, but there's hope. And I say, well, why is, why is there hope? Oh, because he said that, uh, that I just need some space. Okay, so but what are their actions telling you? Well, they said that I need some space. I say, yeah, but what are their actions? Well, they've, they've, they've moved out of the house. They've, they've got their own account now and they're seeing someone else. So what are you waiting for? All right, because there's hope that they might come back again. Yeah, but what are their actions? And so when they can, you know, and then when they start saying what their actions are and actually saying, oh, hang on a minute, the, the words and, the, and the, the actions aren't congruent, then they can actually start putting the pieces together because everyone else can see that the, the actions aren't congruent, but they're so in love with that particular man or woman that they just don't want to step away. And they don't know that the relationship's over even though all the uh, evidence is to the contrary. So it's it's those sort of little things or big things in this case, in that example, that, that can happen. You would have, um, thank you for expanding on that. I'm sure you would have had a lot of people that come through the workshops who struggle with drug abuse and not just recreational drugs, but using that as a mask and using that as a crutch, using that as, you know, as again, something to decompress. But you know, oftentimes we might have friends or family that we know externally as a, as a non-drug addict or a non-drug abuser that we know they've got a problem because it's not it's not just normal, but we know there's something beyond that. But how do we approach that as a friend or a family member without harming the relationship to say, hey, I, you know, what? where does that stem from? Is that going to a workshop? Is that, a, you know, recommending them things? Or, you know, what would your approach be on how to tackle someone with a drug abuse problem that's maybe you know using that as a mask yeah that's that's a really tough one because everyone is so different and you know with the different types of effects their drugs ha have on people you know marijuana they just become so withdrawn and lethargic and you know they've got no motivation and i know that sounds very generic but you know i'm just thinking that quite a few of the examples we've had come through the workshop they just it's and it's their mindset around it as well um, if they want to change and, and then you've got the, obviously the harder, more dangerous drugs, I suppose, if you want to talk about it in that respect. And, and it's, it's, it's hard because what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go up to them and, and are you, do you risk your relationship you know, with them? You know, sometimes you have to cut them loose before they can find their way home again. And, and that's, that's a tough decision that everyone has, you know, some people have to make. You know? I know family members have had to said, you know what, I'm out because the pain and what you're putting me through is too much. And, you know, there was a very famous case over in here with WA with a very famous footballer um, for a long time. Uh, and they've had to step back and, and he's back on, on track again now. But it took years for him to do that. 
I mean, he publicised, yeah, I know who you're talking about, obviously, Ben Cousins and having the documentary out as well. Crazy stuff. I mean, putting himself in the spotlight and then having a whole of Australia as a mental health drug addict and a famous footballer. Yeah, it's such a story. Yeah, we could speak about half an hour on that. Continue, yeah, continue. And, 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 he's, and he, he, did a, he played a football game over here just recently um, for charity uh, uh, to give back. And he's, he's so much better now and it's, and it's great to see. But it, it took him a long time to get to where he was. And even with all that love and support in the background, people had to step away. So I really don't know how to answer it, Michael, to be quite honest, because... I've never been put in that situation. I don't know how I would handle it even. You know, I'd, I'd probably have the conversation and, and if they stepped away, then it's like, well, that's that's their their choice. But you've got to try and give them the opportunity, I suppose, and say, look, you know, we're here for you. Let's try and do something about this. Uh, and if they're up for it, great. And if they're not and they run away, then you've done everything you can. I think that's the best way. Just have a conversation and, and open it up to them in a, with, a, with a loving, nurturing, supportive way. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I think that's the best answer as well, just to have that honest conversation. And at the end of the day, you can hold your head up high to say you've tried or you've kept the space open. Um, now, one of the notes you talk about as well is the first step to any healing process is the hardest one is actually admitting to yourself that you have a problem. And that could be yourself or someone else as well, just exactly like I said. It means we aren't perfect and it doesn't mean uh, we feel weak and it, and it makes us doesn't make us feel less of a man. It's nothing's from further from the truth, which you talk about. And the second one, the hardest thing to do is actually reach out and ask for help as well, which we've discussed, because uh, you can't do it on your own. Otherwise, you know, we, we still wouldn't be struggling uh, to talk about some of the tips to get out of sort of these negative cycles. I call them the script and the loops as we all, as men and, and females as well, we get stuck in these negative loops and these negative scripts. And we know we're in one. It's just a, it's just a one of those Groundhog Day movies. What are the, some of the things we could do to start getting out of those negative cycles, scripts, and loops? Yeah, those negative movies you play in ahead. Uh, for for me, it's uh, and I've, I've given a I'll give a couple couple of examples. And one of them is just to when you hear it and acknowledge it, and and that's because we do it so often and it's so uh, continual for a lot of us, and it was for me for many many years. It, it's, it becomes second nature, so you don't even notice it. So we have to stop and notice it first. And the first thing you have to do is if you hear this, oh, what are you doing that for, you bloody idiot? You're an absolute knobhead. The first thing you have to do is go, no, stop. And tell him to stop, tell this voice in your head, and give him a stupid name like um, Bonkers Brett or something like that, so, or Bonkers Billy. Now that's Bonkers Billy talking to me again. Okay, so when I shut Bonkers Billy up, I'm gonna tell myself what's uh, what it is. So. Stop, Bonkers Billy. I'm not an idiot. I'm actually an intelligent guy who's just made a mistake, but I'm going to fix that right now. So you have to stop the negative talk and then reinforce it yourself. Obviously, you don't say it out loud unless you want to, and just say it in your head. And you just keep stopping the 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 the, the Bonkers Billy from saying what he is saying and reinforce it with your own positive words about that particular situation and scenario. If you do that often enough, then all of a sudden you'll start listening to the positive stuff and not the negative stuff. Like you, like you talk about switching perceptions. Yes. Yeah. And the other, the other one that is, which I think is a bit of fun as well is if, if you, if something happens and you're playing this, this thing in your head, then you stop it again. You just say stop. And then you play it like a, a Charlie Chaplin movie and fast forward with really high pitched voices and do it again. And then it takes all the seriousness out of it and you, and you just think it's stupid. And once you do that, you go, and I'm not going to do it with my stupid funny voice, but it's like, and you do that three or four times and all of a sudden you go, oh yeah, what's so, okay, no, no, that's not right. What it actually is, is I'm 
X, Y, Z, and you replace it with the positive again. So it's just about making the fun out of the negative and, and, and reinforcing the positive. And if we do that often enough, it just resets that mindset into that positivity rather than that negativity loop. Yeah, it's going back to the old school NLP stuff with Tony Robbins. I've, I've heard that one before. It's really good. So it's re rewriting and rewiring those circuits in those those loops because we can talk and we, we talk about you know soft skills and language and things like that, but we're actually hardwired. We have neurons. We have a brain. We, we run on loops, and you can just watch yourself day to day. You might be thinking, you know, they say we do 80% of the same things every day, but 95% of the same thoughts every day as well. 80% of the thoughts are negative. So here we are walking around 80% of the time, uh, negative, negative mental thoughts as well, which sort of segues into the next thing I want to talk about as well, which is um, what happens after mental illness, which is suicide. And you talk about, you know, one in five people in Australia suffer from, you know, will suffer from mental illness. And I'm sure COVID has exacerbated the numbers as well. And more people will go unreported suffering mental health because they just think it's the norm as well because everyone else is suffering. Well, it's nothing I need to raise the alarm bells because everyone's going through the same thing. And the numbers have, you know, risen by a million people in the last three years. 50% of the population will have a mental health issue during their lifetime, um, which is every second person in Australia which is bloody scary, which you talk about. And it's an epidemic that's out of control. Now, eight people commit, well, eight people successfully commit suicide in Australia every single day. And six of those are men as well. Um, it's pretty much double the uh, car accident rate. So how many people die in motor vehicle accidents in Australia? And you talk about 30 people a day in Australia attempt commit suicide. And I'm sure the numbers are very high in other parts of the world as well. But just sticking with Australia, that's you know 87,000 people which will fit into the MCG who try to take their life. Now, that's a crazy fucking statistic if you, if you look at it that way. Um, do you want to talk about that and your experience with, you know, suicide and, and, you know, you're dealing with men who are sort of on the brink and I'm sure you've lost uh, people close to you as well to suicide. How important is this particular subject? It's, I, th I think the numbers have actually gone up. When I first heard those numbers, there's about 30 people who attempt suicide every year. And I actually, I actually did the figures. Every day, every day. Yeah. Oh, sorry, every day. Um, 30, 30 people attempt every day. And then you, I worked out those figures to be like you said, the MCG. And I just couldn't get my head around it that we could have 100,000 people almost a year trying to take their own life. And it was just, it just scared me. And I still, I still feel not numb, but I just, the goosebumps on my body is just like, how, how can we get to this point where people just can't reach out uh, and can't, um, can't, can't see there's a, there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel. And, and, and we've had quite a, a lot of lost quite a lot of few lives and even one just in the last month or so last three weeks or so here of a 16 year old we had a lot of young deaths in the last few years around uh, the various communities around here in wa where where i am uh just south of perth and, and i just don't know how these young people can get to that point where they they don't think there could be something better in life later on down the track and i think it's just we need to get that conversation out there and build the resilience in our kids, which will then into adults, because the most common way for a person to die between the ages of 15 and 44 is by suicide, you know, for men. Uh, and it's like, that's the most common way to die between 15 and 44 is suicide. It's like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. You know, with all the other stuff that goes on in the world, that's what's killing us the most. And it's like, we got to start opening up the, these, these communication channels and, and understanding, you know, life... There's, there's other things that we can help us move through this shit. You know, there's, there's stuff that happens that we allowed to, 
to to get and actually enjoy life and love life and you know for me I was I all my energy was used in survival for, for 30 years of my adult life I I just used all my energy to survive now I've got all this energy to to learn more and grow and be the best person I can be and and have this purpose to help other people but when we're in that in that really low energy just trying to get through each day again there's no light at the end of the tunnel but we have to start reach getting these get, changing the the community's perspective on you know what it's okay to talk about it it's okay to go and get help it's okay to to go and get some medication for it or, or speak to a psychologist and until we do that the numbers will continue to rise because we have this stubbornness about us especially us men where it's like because women suffer from depression and anxiety more than what men do statistically but men have three times more deaths in suicide than women so women obviously have a, a pretty good network system on how to deal with it and the men don't and I think that's where it is. Women know how to talk about it and, and open up and deal with it. Whereas the men, we shut, shut up shop and uh, get to the point where we just can't see a way out and we, 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 you know, do the worst thing possible for our friends and family and definitely ourselves. Yeah, and a lot of men think they're doing the right thing by escaping it through the, through the ultimate, you know, sacrifice themselves as well. But I definitely think it's a cultural thing and an environment thing as well worldwide that, you know, unfortunately, we haven't created the culture or the environment. We are in, we have inherited the culture and environment. We've inherited these, you know, systems of indoctrination with schools. You know, who says we have to? I've got this massive theory on. You know, who says we have to live in houses? Like, what's this thing about living with a, a small family in a house? Like, can't we live in a a massive house, a massive community, like a massive hotel, and you know, like just go to different places and see different people and hang it. Like I'd love to come home after work, live in this massive community and just go see people talk and do all the fun stuff. But I think we've been domesticated into this lifestyle of loneliness. And that's the biggest thing as well. And you talk about how, you know, women have a great network of females where they can talk and they, they can talk to anyone because that's their nature as well. Where men, as you said, we just close up shop where we need to start talking and this is where you're creating these communities and something i'm really passionate about creating these retreats these workshops and these spaces where men can actually go and express and and actually get it off their chest and talk about it the biggest therapy is talking therapy and the second one is listening therapy hence podcasts have taken off where people listening to this right now might get something from it and that's a that's a form of therapy listening to you know two men me and you just just having a chit chat regarding you know serious matters but someone can take a takeaway from it and say hey i didn't think about that or i didn't do that as well uh moving on from the suicide thing which what happens after that is grief uh talk to me about your experience in grief you you talk about working through the seven stages of grief grief i've done a book summary on the kerbal ross you know grief anger denial bargaining all that kind of stuff too do you want to talk about sort of you know the four tasks of the morning model that you talk about and and the seven stages of grief a little bit as well and how you know we can move beyond grief and how do we actually heal yeah and and the cycle of grief i mean there's there's this they talk about the seven stages but those seven stages can come at any stage they can re-loop around themselves and they can you know chop and change and and you know you think you're all right and then the next minute you're in, a, in an anger spot again but at the end of the day it's it's about for me it's about gratitude uh and just you know accepting that we have to accept at some stage that it's their time uh when it's their time to go and yes we can get angry and frustrated and that sort of stuff but that's not going to bring them back it's not going to uh change what's happened 
we can still we can still when we have those emotions that anger that frustration etc etc just feel them just feel it's all right to feel those those emotions just let them wash over you write it down you know i think gelling's a fantastic thing and when you are frustrated or angry about something uh, going going through the grief for example, write it out. Write out why you're angry. Let it out on paper rather than bottling it up and just go, you know what, it's okay to feel angry and this will pass. And I can give you angry for a, a week or a month or so because of, of a loved one. And and I lost an uncle a, a few years back and and he had been sick for a little while. And so we had a little bit of time to, you know, we actually got to say goodbye to him. And uh, he was probably one of my closer uncles, uh, probably my closest uncle. And, and I remember... My, my, my cousin rang me up and said, I want you to be a pallbearer. And my whole brain flipped. I'm like, oh my God, I can't do that. That's, you know, and then I sort of sat back and went, you know what? I'm really grateful for the opportunity to say goodbye to this man who I loved in a really unique way, which I've never done before and only a few people get to do. So my mindset changed. As soon as I did that, you know, it's like, you know, at the funeral, I was emotional and I cried. But at the same time, when it, got, when it came time to, to because he was an ex-police officer as well retired police officer and we had that in common i got to step up there and actually carrying him to his next part of his journey and i was honored to do that and just having that gratitude about the laughs we had the life we had together you know through the various times the fishing the, the jokes and the police force side jokes but no one else knew about having that with him is always going to be special to me and i think if you just focus on the gratitude and the life you got to leave with them um, for that period of time, then that will help us work through those rest of those emotions a lot quicker. Um, we just have to focus on the positives and the love and the, the the amazing times we shared. And by doing that, it just allows us to to let the other stuff wash away a little bit faster for us. It's still all right to feel them. It just lets us wash away a bit quicker. Absolutely. And like he said, just let it wash over you and let it and and feel it. Like the the thing with uh, anything in life, we have expectations, and the expectation of that person shouldn't have died then just like the shame worn thing yeah he died and people die suddenly and people are shocked and think that everyone has to live to you know 87.2 years uh and die from you know old age um which is expectations and we live in a world of unknowns and we're sort of all walking each other home and when we realize that you know we're all the same we're all sort of trying to find our way through the forest and we're all on this plan et planet um you know together at this time in this realm we, we realize that hey you know there's no such thing as separation and you know if, if you do good in the world and you've done good and that person who died has done good then be grateful for what they've done as well and it's their time to to move on as well so yeah i know you talked about that uh, a little bit too so i just want to bring that up as well um when sort of the next event uh with the momentum revolution i know wa's been uh, closed with COVID, you've probably been the worst state in Australia, probably in the world of, of lockdown. Victoria had it last year, but what's happening over there in WA at the moment? Are you opening up or? Yeah, we're we're opening up a bit more. Definitely, we've still got masks, uh, and uh, and people are getting. Uh, yeah, it's. I won't go into it, but it's. Hopefully, it's getting better. It's it's for quite frustrating, as you know, the rest of the world has known. But everyone else is getting moving on, and we're like going. We're just WA means wait a while, I think, and uh, and so we're just waiting a while longer and see what else happens. And uh, but we're starting to open up. We've got. I've actually got a, a one day uh, workshop next week, which is like an introductory one. We're going out in the bush and we're 
doing a few little exercises and, you know, doing a bit of manly, blokey stuff in the bush and a bit of yelling and screaming and whatnot. And so that's going to be a fun one. We haven't done a one-day one before, so looking forward to that. And the next one's uh, in July. So I've got a, I've got a couple more things uh, between now and then. I've, I've got my uh, TED Talk coming up, which I think I, I talked to you about before. Um, so that's coming up in about five weeks. So I'm excited about that. So that takes a bit of time. Um, and like you said, you can't really read my book when I haven't written it yet. So I'm, I'm about... Uh, uh, two th- or a third of the way through my second draft, so that's keeping me busy. And uh, yeah, so it's uh, life's, life's busy, 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 and we're actually running our first women's workshop in June as well, so we're excited about that. Yeah, so. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. I always like uh, first-time authors that are in their process as well. It's always very exciting to see what happens after that. I'm looking forward to the book coming out. Will you do anything down in Melbourne, in, in Victoria? I know there's uh, I've got a um, quite a good audience in here that would in melbourne australia that would love to um, have the momentum revolution come down here is there anything on the cards maybe at the end of the year or next year we haven't got anything planned at the moment but you know never say never um, we do have quite a few people um, in the past who've actually flown in from darwin and adelaide to come and come to the workshop so people actually fly across and have it which is pretty cool as well which we're very humbled and honored to have them across come across and do that but uh, like i said never say never we, we don't know i've got a couple of mates over there who do run workshops as well um I don't want to tread on their toes. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, there's, um, there's, there's, there's always a possibility, you know, and, and uh, I love, I love the stuff that we do. And, and if we can help just one person every time we do it, it's just, it's, it's a bonus. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I'm probably going to end with a, a quote that you posted recently. It's called my emotional backpack. Uh, if you want to talk about it, you can, but uh, I'll just read it out. It's not your quote, but you share it. And it's really good. It's called my emotional backpack. I was born without it, but I grew to love it the backpack on my back. I don't remember getting it, but I do remember filling it, that backpack on my back. I filled it with thoughts. I cultured myself. I filled it with feelings best kept on a shelf. I filled it with anger and hatred and need. I filled it daily because I needed to feed that backpack on my back. It grew so big, it grew so fast. And at times I wondered if I'd outlast that backpack on my back. I felt the end was coming close, so I decided I had to change. No longer to feed it daily dose of anger and need and shame. I dealt with that anger. I just let it go. I dealt with the pain and the loss. I dealt with the thoughts and the needing to know why I was the one it cost. I emptied my backpack. I tossed it out the stones of life's emotional drouse. I emptied my backpack and threw it away. I'll do it every day. No longer will I be a slave to feeding a tiresome boss. I've emptied my backpack and threw it away and you too can do it today. My emotional backpack. That's a pretty cool quote. It's very cool. It's uh, so I, I talk about. I found that, and I've been talking about my my emotional backpack for um, a couple of years. And the emotional backpack is the backpack we wear. That when we're born, it's empty. And every time something negative happens, if we don't deal with it and let it go, then a little emotional pebble goes into it. And along the way, if we don't deal with those little things, that backpack starts to fill up. And then we've got the big emotional issues. Like for me, the, the child abuse, big boulder, boom, in the backpack. That gets quite heavy. Then you've got, you know, the, the uh, siege that I talked about, that's another big boulder. And then over a period of time, when all these little things happen to you and you're feeling that, that low self-worth and that low self-esteem and something happens, all of a sudden there's something else that is said or something else is done, and all of a sudden, you're just being weighed down all the time with this emotional 
shit that you've been carrying around with for, you know, for me, 44 years. And all it does is, you know, you, you fight your way up, you fight in every step of the way to try and make yourself feel better. And then all of a sudden, someone has a little pebble. And all I have to do is just drop that pebble into your backpack and you're back down in the, in the depression state again. And so by emptying out that backpack, those emotional issues, those traumas, like I said, what I did with my workshop, when I went to my workshop and, and got to do with my stuff, by, by emptying out that, that emotional shit on that weekend, it just freed me emotionally. And it was, and that's how I, I basically describe it. It's just this complete emotional freedom by, by emptying it out. Because it was like I wasn't being weighed down by this bullshit anymore. And, and that poem, that, that quote just sums it up beautifully. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. When I when I read it, I thought it was a great um, a great sort of poem and a quote as well. And last topic that I want to discuss, which no one really discussed it. As I said, it's something that's sort of a day to day thing for a lot of people. It's stress, and you know, some people can deal with stress, handle stress. You know, we we sleep, drink coffee, you know, watch TV, go to work. Uh, but stress can incorporate sort of worry, change, no control, uncertainty, finances, especially people have you know, been smashed economically speaking in the last two years. Responsibility as well, you know, had, had, sometimes we can cope, other times it's overwhelming, it can affect our mental and physical health, relationships, it can control your life. You know, how do we cope with, with stress? What, what are some of the things that you've uncovered over the last couple of years with dealing with men struggling with stress? There's some steps that, I mean, there's one thing I love and it's my ice bath. You know, I, I had one about an hour before we got on. So it was a bit colder than usual. I'm usually about five degrees. It was about two and a half. So I got there and went, oh, it's a bit colder. Than, oh. So I have to get that a bit more managed. But so it was about two and a half degrees. So I love my ice bath for a couple of minutes. But it's all about the breath work. You know, doing doing some good breath work, some gratitude work and some journaling. Those three things there will can I found can release most of my stress almost immediately. Because if I get home from work or from something and something's frustrated me or I'm pissed off about or something like that, rather than sitting on the TV and just turning the TV on and just shutting down, which is what I used to do. So my poor old wife would get the worst of me. You know, if I have to come in and come home now and, and instead of sitting there and shutting down and just not saying anything and being a miserable old bugger, I'll just come to the room, I'll get out the journal, I'll write down the feel, what happened to me or what, what I felt, what was underneath those feelings and why I felt that way. And if I can get that out, and then do some some very simple breath work. I, I do box breathing, and then do some gratitude work. Walk out there, it's like, "Hi, honey, how are you? Good to see you." You know, and it's just it's lifted because I'm not carrying it around with me every single day, and that just and as soon as you get rid of it, that backpack is empty. Because if you if you don't deal with it, it goes into your backpack again. One of my biggest things is to mental things, especially is to keep clean. And someone told me today, they said, well, "I journal two pages a day." So nearly 700 pages a year for the last 13 years. So I've got thick, thick journals. And it's a way that I can clear the cache like a computer, reset. Um, I have been experimenting with Wim Hof uh, breathing as well. I've actually got a quote up here from Wim Hof, which says, your brain has the power to modify your pain perception. And obviously Wim Hof, his wife committed suicide. He had four or five kids. What does he do? He, you know, he, he deep dived into hit the body and breathing and ice and cold and realize that you know our body the sympathetic nervous system like we can actually change uh stress and get that out of the body as well so i think these are things that are, i've got a lot of friends that are actually doing this stuff um not professionally but very very good in teaching it as well so yeah they, there's a lot of things out there that men can 
find new tools or just be open to actually do it as well. So I think there's been a massive shift over the last, you know, three, five, even a decade of men actually practicing these things, not just things you watch on TV you'll hear about, but these are these are everyday things that we can do to to minimize stress and, and release it from our life. Because as you said, with the backpack and all the things we've spoken about in the last, you know, nearly an hour, this is all goes into the backpack and this is what all weighs men down. So these are the great little techniques that we can overcome. And that and that's the beauty of it, Michael, is that you can do this whenever you want, anytime, day or night. And it's it's so simple. And it's it's if you just practice it, and like like I said before, it, it's about persistency and consistency. And if you do that, you can re, your life can turn around really quickly. I mean, four years ago, literally this month, four years ago, I was in a massive depressive mess. You know, and four years later, I'm doing a TED talk, writing a book, and talking to people on podcasts for God's sake. You know, about all my lessons I've learned, which I still practice regularly. So you know, it, your life can change really, really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure, you know, over the last 44 years, all these things, you can go back and connect the dots. And now you can see what they've led you to. Sometimes the hardest past have the best futures. And I think that would be your next 44 years as well. So I think you still got a lot of life and a, a lot of juice and a lot of energy as well. So Brett, I want to say thank you for being a guest on the Best Book Bits podcast. Now for, for men and women listening out there, where can they find uh, more about uh, the Momentum Revolution? Uh, we've got the, the web page, which is momentumrevolution.com.au. And uh, obviously on Facebook, you've got Dr. Brett Della and also Momentum Revolution. So send me a message, say good day. If you, when you hear the podcast, more than happy to reach out and have a chat. Um, just, just love connecting with people and, and uh, hearing about their story and helping them on their journey. So thanks, Michael, for having us. I really appreciate Absolutely. it, mate. Absolutely. Thank you, Brett. Uh, thank you for opening up... Uh, your story and your life and to my audience out there yeah definitely uh watch this space there will be a book summary coming out uh, later on and we'll definitely have brett back to to go through the book too and uh, i'll do everything i can to uh make sure the momentum revolution is a success in australia and beyond as well so again brett thank you for being a guest on the best book Bit podcast and we'll speak to you soon okay thanks michael cheers bud